The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Grace. Grace is enough. That you give us grace is enough, Lord. I thank you for that. Father, you have reached down and you have worked in our lives in amazing, in stunning ways, in fact. You've worked in us in grace. I thank you for that. Would you cause, in my brothers and sisters here today, would you cause gratefulness and reverence to well up in us as we think about your grace Lord, renew us on the inside today with the scriptures. Speak to us. Commission your spirit to come here and move in our midst, I pray. Open up the Bible to us that we might see it and understand it. Understand something about ourselves. Be conformed to your image and live lives in that honor you. Would you do that in our midst today, Lord? That is my prayer. We pray for Christ's glory. Amen. Calvin and Hobbes is a fun and often insightful comic strip. You know that comic strip? I've got one of those pinned to the bulletin board in my study, one that I like in particular. Calvin the boy says to Hobbes, his tiger, Hobbes, do you think our morality is defined by our actions or by what's in our heart? And Hobbes says, I think our actions show what's in our heart. To which Calvin says, I resent that. <laughs> our actions show what's in our hearts. Or our doing. What we do, our actions display. They show, they come out of, they flow from our being. What's inside of us. Our actions show what is in our hearts. Hobbes understands the book of Ephesians. Up until Christmas, we were giving attention to what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been laboring to teach us in chapters 1 to 3 about our being, about who we are inside now that Christ has worked to save us. Now that he has worked this great change on us and we have been delivered from the wrath that should have been ours. We are different. Our beings have been changed. That was addressed in some detail there in those chapters. The marvelous gospel of God's grace. Now, for the last two weeks, we've switched our focus right along with the scriptures, and we've moved from talking and focusing on that being to now looking a little more directly at the doing. We haven't left that window, if you remember that illustration. We're still right there close to it. But now our focus has changed a little bit. And we're now talking about worthy walking. Not walking that makes the walker worthy of something. No. But walking that is worthy of being associated with all the great truths in chapters 1 to 3. That kind of walking is our main focus now. And the first thing that came to Paul's mind, 
The first thing that came to Paul's God-inspired, God-directed mind was unity, oneness in the body, a oneness that has been gloriously gained in the gospel, but which also must be attained and maintained, earnestly displayed in the public arena for all to see that God might be most glorified. That unity, that unity was first on his mind, the top of his priority list. It needs to be important for us too should be significant for us too. And now here at verse 17, the focus shifts again just a little bit. Worthy walking is characterized by unity, 1 to 16, and worthy walking is characterized by righteousness and holiness. This one new man, the church, the one new man in Christ from chapter 2, is one, unified, and that's new, all these separated groups are drawn together as one. That's new. But we're supposed to be new in another way, too. New in how we live ethically and morally. We are to be holy and righteous. The Lord has wrought a stunning change in us, and that demands different walking, different ethics, different morals. Now, many of the details about what that looks like will come next week. There's a lot of commands that are coming in verses 25 and following. This morning, we're going to see Paul actually agreeing with Hobbes in the comic strip. What's inside comes out. Being leads to doing. Or having your mind captured and then gripped and then reformed and reshaped by all that stuff in chapters 1 to 3, that will issue forth in different doing, in different walking. It will. It must. It's what Hobbes was saying, sort of. It's what I've been saying for a number of months. And Paul's going to say it here this morning. But to be clear, it's not any of the three of us that are actually saying this. It is God. It's God's word to you. It's God's word here in this passage. What he wants to communicate, if I put it into a sentence, is this. Because you must walk in holiness and righteousness. Because you've been changed and because now you must walk in holiness and righteousness. Therefore, tend to your mind. Because you must walk in this way, you've been changed. Therefore, now tend to care for, feed, nourish, address the inside you, your mind. That's the word that's going to be used in this passage. The Bible often runs mind and heart together. We'll see that a little bit here today too. Tend to the inside you, the internal seat of perception. What it is inside of you that sees things, that understands them, and that forms opinions and beliefs and makes decisions. That inside you must be tended to because you have to walk in holiness and righteousness. You must walk in that way. You must be passionate in some way, to some degree. If you have genuinely been changed, you must be passionate for holiness and righteousness. You must in your heart desire, you must have a new taste to display this kind of a God-glorifying life. And that kind of life comes from inside. Therefore, tend to the inside. Tend to your mind. The battle for holiness on the outside is fought long before it shows up out there. It's fought inside first.
That's what Paul's going to say this morning. The passage actually splits into two different halves. That's how we're going to address it. We're going to split it in half. But first, let me read it, actually. Ephesians chapter 4. This is verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verses 17 to 24. Verse 17 begins, Now this, that is what's to come here, now this I say and testify to in the Lord. The NIV's translation here is a little less accurate, but it does better convey the meaning. Paul says, Now this I say and insist on in the Lord. Paul is an apostle and as such carries great authority. And he's going to tell you something here, but he's not making a suggestion. He is insisting on it. He's getting pushy here. But it's his right. It's his duty, in fact. I insist on this. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles, that's Paul's word for unbeliever. For those outside of the relationship with God. Now, Pastor Silva this morning urged us to think of positive words for unbeliever, and that's, that's true, that's valid, but this passage has a lot of stern things to say to and about unbelievers. It might be helpful to realize that we all walked those shoes before too. But for the grace of God, we would still walk in those shoes. So he's talking about unbelievers. That's the word that I'm going to use because Gentile sounds odd to us. Paul insists you must no longer walk as unbelievers do in the futility of their minds. First main point is right there. Did you see it? Walking like an unbeliever is walking in futility of mind. The two are connected. Where does unbeliever walking come from? From a futile mind. Or to rearrange it a little bit and put it in a more simple sentence, here's the first main point. The mind is the key to unworthy walking. The mind is the key to unworthy walking. That being and doing connection, that works for non-believers too. Worthy walking comes from a new being. Well, unworthy walking comes from an old being. The mind is the key to unworthy walking as well. Paul is about to indict the whole lifestyle of the non-believer. Everything, both his walking and, most importantly, his insides. But realize this. He's not just going off on a rant to, like, to bash those people who aren't, aren't in the church or aren't in the kingdom yet. 
He's actually writing this to Christians. He's not doing it so that you'll feel better and, and they'll feel worse. He's not even doing it just so that you'll be informed about some other people's situation. He's writing this for at least two reasons. One, first, so that worship would well up in you. And you'd be thankful. You would see all that God has delivered you from by grace, not by anything you've done. That worship would well up in you and you'd be thankful to Him for His grace. But also, secondly, so that you'd be able to identify what it is you are to avoid. That you'd know what to watch for and be careful for. So, therefore, as we move through these next several phrases, keep this in the back of your mind. Think about them like this, not, wow, look at other people. But instead, that's what I need to avoid. That's what I need to pray against. I kind of lean towards that sometimes. I've got to watch out for that. Approach these phrases with that kind of a mindset. Got that? So, used to walk in the futility of your mind. You used to. Futility is utter uselessness. Futility or futile, it's one of those words that doesn't allow for degrees, like pregnant or impossible. Nothing, nobody, never is mostly pregnant. Nothing is ever actually mostly impossible. Nothing is ever mostly futile. Futile is an absolute term. It's like if you try to go put out a forest fire with a squirt gun. You've got a person at a fire with water. So far, so good. But as soon as you start pulling the trigger, you immediately realize this is entirely futile. This isn't half futile. This isn't a third futile. This is not working at all. Not going to happen. That's what your mind was and still is, actually, if you haven't come to Christ futility of mind. It's not that your mind is utterly useless. That's not true. The mind, the human mind, even right now, even in our fallen state, is stunning. Its capabilities are amazing. The things that we, that we do, even without thinking about it, but let alone what we can apply our minds to, and the arguments we can understand, we can figure problems and solve great difficulties. Our minds are stunning. It's not that, they, that they're useless or something. That squirt gun at the fire, it works. The water's coming out just like it's supposed to. But it's not up to the task. That's a situation with our minds. In and of themselves, they are unable to accomplish that which for which, that which for which, that which they were made for. <laughs> Stumble over my words. <laughs> unable to accomplish it. They can't. Our minds were made to comprehend a vast number of things. And into all, and in all of those things, to recognize something. To recognize something in particular. The glory of God. Our minds were meant to see all of this creation and in it to see the glory of God. And by seeing, I mean more than just conceptually identifying. Psalm 19, Romans 1. Romans 1, incidentally, is a very similar passage to this one. Those passages and others make clear that the kind of seeing that is just intellectually comprehending God as being there, everybody sees that way. We all look at the mountains and the ocean. We reckon with the wonder of a birth of a child. We see the intricacies of the human eye and we see God in that in some way. We see, but we don't see. 
We don't actually get it. We all see the same mountains, the same oceans. But by itself, our mind in that fallen state, all by itself, is unable to see the glory of God so as to delight in it, so as to submit to it, to Him, and to glory in Him and worship Him. That's the kind of seeing that is necessary. A seeing that is also at the same time a cherishing and a valuing and an embracing. The inner part of us, that inside the seat of disposition, whether you call it the mind or the heart, it can't see. It can't spiritually see like that. And that's what's necessary. We all once were there. Some of us probably still are there. Trapped in futility. Unable to see Him. Wrestling with information. Information that we gather in from the creation, even from the written scripture, but, but not able to actually see it. And so instead we suppress it, as Romans 1 says. You didn't get it. Another way of putting it is verse 18, you were darkened in your understanding. A shroud had been draped over your understanding. A thick, heavy curtain had been hung over the window of your insides and the light had gone out. The word understanding there is interesting when I'm talking about how the heart and mind overlap. Well, this word understanding might sound rather intellectual to us. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used repeatedly in place of the word heart. These words run together in the Bible very often. The inside us is what he's talking about. Our seat of understanding, our hearts, our minds were darkened. The light had gone out. In other words, we were operating in futility. Take the next several phrases together. Alienated from the life of God due to the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. The lights had gone out. We were separated from God. True life that is in God and in God alone was not available to us. Alienation. It's pointing at sitting under God's wrath and under His judgment. This is a devastating situation. Sometimes we might think that, oh, to just be ignorant, that, that's, that's tough, but you can still kind of get along. Ignorant here is not just ignorant of facts. It's ignorant as in don't know, relationally don't know God, alienated from Him, separated from Him. Fumbling around in the blackness, always seeing but never really perceiving what is there. Separated from God and from life and ignorant of Him. This is devastating if you think about this. This is where you were. But look where this is rooted. At the very bottom of this, at least as far down as this verse goes. We could ask and go further, but Paul leaves it right here in this verse. At the bottom level, it's not an information problem. You see that? At the bottom level, alienation comes from ignorance, comes from personal hard-heartedness. Ouch. He leaves it, he parks it right on the person. That's where he leaves it. The Bible repeatedly does that. Romans 1.18 
says that we suppress the truth because of our unrighteousness. We don't walk unrighteously because we don't know. We suppress the truth because of our nature. We are unrighteous. Here, Ephesians 4.18, we are ignorant due to our hardness of heart. It's not an information problem. It's a heart disposition problem. And I say this to you in as much humility as I can muster here. I don't know how these words will come across, but I am sure that there are people here today who are not believers. I'm, I'm sure you are. Maybe you've been a little bit put off by how I've kind of been talking about you in your presence. Some of the ways the Bible talks about you in your presence, and I admit it's a little awkward. I'm sorry about that. But now I want to talk directly to you. And I want to do it as humbly as I can. You need to see what is said here at the end of verse 18. Because it's talking about you. You remain right now in unbelief. And you may very well have questions that that need answers, that you're curious about, that you want to ask. That's good. Ask them. Keep seeking them. But it is important to see right here, this verse tells you that you remain in unbelief right now, not because you don't know the answer to those questions. You remain in unbelief right now because your heart is hardened against God. He's telling you this indirectly because he wants to plead with you for a minute here. You're not lost because you don't know. You're lost because you don't want to come. You don't want to come to Christ on his terms. The only solution to that is not more information. The only solution is repentance. To talk to God and tell him, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry that I have held you off, that I have set up myself and my own standards as God, that I won't come to you until it agrees with me. The only solution is to repent of that. And so I plead with you, please do that. As long as you don't, you remain right here in verse 18, separated from him, alienated from him, walking in darkness. I don't say that to you in triumph. I don't always come across as the most caring person, but but I want to tell you I'm trying to care for you. I want to ask you, and even in the name of the Lord command you, repent. You must turn to him. More can be said about that, I'm sure. That's verse 18, the being of the unbeliever. Summarized in that statement, futility of mind. You all used to have, I used to have, a fallen mind that was unable to clearly ascertain the radical God-centeredness of the world, unable to grasp the magnitude of the glory of Christ, unable to conform our lives and walking to it. We still have fallen minds, but we're not as bad as we used to be. God's worked something in us. We're going to get to that shortly. But that's what we used to be. He's worked a change in us. But that's where we once walked. And because we used to live there, we used to be there, it led to verse 19 doing. Verse 2, in chapter 2's words, instead we walked in the course of the world, following after our own desires, following even after Satan. 
Verse 19 ensued. Unbelievers become callous, that is, insensitive to the needs of others. They've elevated number one onto the pedestal, and that's the primary job to look out for self. They walk in sensuality, pursuing what is pleasing to the flesh, indulging in all kinds of stuff, continually wanting more. You continually want more because you do something for a while and it doesn't satisfy anymore. So you've got to add on something else, and that doesn't satisfy anymore. You've got to add on something else, and it keeps growing. There's a sexual angle to this, but it's far more than that. It's pleasing the flesh, pure and simple. The list could go on. Now, not every person does everything, and not every person does everything in the same degree. Of course not. But generally speaking, collectively, that is the way the world walks, verse 19. And it does so because of verse 18. The mind, the fallen, futile mind, is the key to unworthy walking. Unworthy walking comes from that kind of thinking which raises an important question for all the Christians in the room. When you, Christian, walk in an unworthy manner, what does that say about your mind? It says you are far closer to verse 18 than you should be. We have indeed, we're going to see shortly, we have indeed been liberated from all that. Praise the Lord. We have been liberated, but we are still fallen, and our minds are still plagued. And we lean back towards verse 18, and therefore towards verse 19, far more than we should. You ever see yourself as a Christian being insensitive and rude and primarily oriented towards number one? I do. Not you, me. Do you ever find yourself given over to lustful thinking and desires as a Christian? Do you ever find yourself hard-hearted as a Christian? Do you? Yes, you do. You're far closer to verse 18 than you should be. It should alarm you. It should cause something to rise up in you. You are believing at times, not always, but at times you are believing those human deceptions, the cunning schemes that we saw previously. You're still vulnerable to that. It's where you still live. It would be nice, wouldn't it, to be able to say, you know, all of verse 18 and 19, I am entirely over that. The change that has happened in my life was so profound that that used to be me, but none of it is now. That would be nice, but that would not be true. If you aren't any different than that, you aren't a Christian. The Bible knows nothing of a genuine Christian who is not in some way different, who has not in some way been changed, who doesn't have some new taste for holiness and righteousness and pursue that and walk in it. The Bible knows nothing about Christians of that sort. But the fact remains that we have been chained, but we have not been completely changed. We still lean back towards those verses. And so Christian, brother, sister, tend to your mind. You must. You can't just fight verse 19 
You've got to fight verse 18 first. You've got to have that kind of internal change, that internal renewal. Happened and happening. That's got to happen. God has to work a change in you, which should cause you to cry out to Him, Oh God, give grace to me to change me on the inside. I, I look at my life and I see how I walk and it's not worthy. It's not worthy. Change me on the inside, please. Help me. He has. And he will. That's the second half of the passage is about. Before we go there, if, if you're going to come to the second half of the passage which any, with any kind of, of internal drive to do anything about it, you've got to realize the first half is not entirely about other people. It's what you used to be and it's what you lean back towards. There's hope here in the second half. But I hope, I'm hoping and praying the first half kind of grips you, does something with you on the inside. Let's look at the second half of the passage, verses 20 and following. If the mind is the key to unworthy walking, and if we must walk in holiness and righteousness, we're going to need internal change. And that's what the second point is about. Your mind has already been and must continually be renewed. Your mind has already been and must continually be renewed. If you're a true Christian, that's happened to you. You did indeed break with the past. And now you do walk differently. But not entirely differently. The change has not been complete. If the battle is not yet over, then you're going to have to keep fighting that battle. You're going to have to fight that battle moment by moment if you're going to walk in holiness and righteousness moment by moment. You have been renewed in your mind inside and you must continually be renewed. Verse 20 begins with a contrast from verse 19. But that's not the way you learned Christ. It's talking about something vast that has happened to you. When the gospel came to you, you were taught a message. Christ you believed in and began to grow in Christ. Your life was shaped around a center, around a standard. Christ. Assuming that you have indeed heard about Him and have in fact been taught about Him who is the truth, you were embraced by Him, you were enrolled in a school, taught a curriculum, and set off on a path. Christ. There is one message in the Bible, one message from the church, Christ. In Him is all the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. In Him and by Him and for Him were all things made. In Him we live and move and have our being. By Christ we were saved. By Christ we are sanctified. By Christ we will one day be fully delivered. Christ is the message. To Christ's glory and by His power we live. He is the lesson we have been taught and have learned. And he taught us particularly three critical things here in the next several verses. 22, 23, and 24 contain three things that he taught us. Three things we were taught by him and about him. Verses 22, 3, and 4 each contain one aspect. You were taught, 22, to put off your old self. 23, to be renewed. And 24, to put on the new self. You see those there? 
That's the threefold message about Christ that you were taught, that you embraced, if in fact you have embraced it. It's a threefold message. It's about the renewal that has already happened to you and about the renewal that must continue to happen. Let's look more closely at these. You'll notice that 22 and 24 are kind of related there. The put off and the put on sound similar. Perhaps taking off a garment comes to mind. You take off the old and, and dirty one and put it aside, then you put on a new and clean one. The image of changing something there, changing clothes. But changing clothes might actually not be the best way to think about this because at least for us, we often change clothes. We change clothes many times every day. Pajamas to work clothes to comfortable clothes back to pajamas and maybe from time to time you throw in like a sports uniform or a swimsuit or a Halloween costume or something. We change clothes all the time. When you learned Christ, you were taught to do this change, this putting off and putting on. But the tenses of the verb here in this section point not, not towards a repeated thing, but towards a once thing, a one-time thing. Something happened to you at your conversion. In the gospel itself, you were taught something. When you learned Christ and you embraced him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And something happened to you. A fundamental renovation began on your insides. Christ made your heart his home. He threw back the curtains and light poured into your heart. You saw him in different ways and in different places than you ever had before. You had come to him humble. You submitted to his will. You were no longer alienated but connected to him again. A change had happened to you. You put off verses 17 to 19. You rejected them as your values and as the norms of your life. You turned away from that. That's what repentance is. A turning away and a turning to something else. It's the old man, 17 to 19, that belonged to your former way of life, who is continually being corrupted. Well, you did away with that. You turned away from that and said, I will no longer embrace that, but I will turn to you, Lord. That's the old self that was put off. There was an ultimatum delivered to you. Christ or the world. And you repented and chose Christ. You were taught to replace him with something. If any man is in Christ, any woman is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. A change happened to you. The gospel call went out to you and you changed the new self that you are is created after the likeness of God. You're different now. Something different happened to you. In relation to God, you were reconnected to Him. And in relation to sin, you're no longer a slave to sin. That was broken. Those chains were broken. You now are made after the likeness of God, created by Him. Look at that very closely there. The new man that is created by God, it's a passive verb there. It doesn't say to you that you create yourself. It's like in chapter 2, verse 10. Remember chapter 2, verse 10? 8 and 9 we know. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God. Any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship created by God, created in Christ Jesus. Same thing going on here. The new person that we are, 
It's created by God. Created to walk in true holiness and righteousness. Last in verse 24. Assuming that you've heard of him and been taught in him, you're taught to walk in a different way, in holiness and righteousness. How does that happen? Well, it's because there's been a fundamental change that's happened inside of you. You were severed from slavery to sin, and there's a renovation going on inside of you. Your whole heart has been made new. You've, you've come to life. The life that is in God has been reconnected to you. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have this sort of life in him in some way. A growing, vibrant, personal righteousness and holiness. In some way, in some fashion, it's in you. Because you've been changed. Verse 18 has been worked out of you in some way. Not completely, but its hold on you has been broken. And you are new. Perhaps rather than changing clothes, we should think about the metamorphosis of a butterfly from a caterpillar. It's a great change in the nature of that animal. And now the butterfly can soar to new heights. It'd be tragic and wrong if he never left the leaf and just kind of walked around like a caterpillar does. The wings are four. Got a new being and he's supposed to act differently. There's an implied command in these two verses, 22 and 24. We'll see it picked up next week in 25 and following. If you have put off and put on, the implied command is, well then whatever belongs to that, you should keep putting off. And you can because you've been severed from its slavery. You're no longer bound by it. You can put it off because you already did. It's an implied command. But the emphasis is on what has already happened. So 22 and 24 are driving at. Your mind has already been renewed. You have been severed from slavery to sin. The curtains have been pulled back. You're reunited to God. Your heart has been humbled. Verse 18 is different in you now. Right there in the middle of 22 and 24 is verse 23. This is an important verse. If you only read 22 and 24, you might think that all the change that has to happen has already happened. And there's no other changing to be done. And that would be puzzling when you realize, I still struggle with sin all the time. There's no other changing to be done? Am I just who I am now? This is what I've got to deal with the rest of my life? 23 corrects that impression and it gives us some important direction for the rest of our lives yes your mind has been changed you have already been renewed but you must also continually be renewed verse 23 you were taught to be renewed in the spirit of your minds do you hear the verb there be renewed it's another passive it didn't say you were taught to renew you were taught to do this action renew yourself it says you were taught to be renewed by someone else. The Lord in this case, obviously. You were taught to be renewed. You were taught to actively put off and put on, 22 and 24. And here you are taught to passively receive God's renewing. There's a difference there, but there's more. 
Did that receiving of that renewing from God happen just once at our conversion? No, in fact. Remember how I said that the, that the tenses of 22 and 24 point us back towards one time in the past, the conversion? Well, the structure here is different. Again, it's a passive and it's continual. So there are two differences between 22, 24 and 23. hope this doesn't get confusing. I'm trying to keep this straight here. There are two differences. 22, 24 says, once, do this. And 23 says, continually receive this. See the difference? Once do this, continually receive this. Two significant differences there. You need to see that. You need to see it because of what it means for how you are to live. You at one point came to Christ and a great renewal happened in you. And now 23 says that for the whole rest of your life you have been enrolled in a mind renewal program that will continually turn you away from 17, 18, and 19. God, from this point on, has placed you in a continual process by which He changes you. He's working on your mind bit by bit by bit, always, from here on. You are to receive that continually. But that's a little bit puzzling, at least to me, because I look at that and I say, how am I supposed to respond to what amounts to a passive command? Be renewed. You receive this. How do I, how do I respond to that? An active command I can understand, like Steve hit the ball. It means I go punch it or I hit it with a bat or something like that. But the passive command, Steve, be hit by the ball, is a little odd. How do, how do I heed that kind of a command? Be hit by the ball. Well, you go where balls are flying. <laughs> you walk out in the middle of somebody playing catch, or you, or you come here on New Year's Eve when we're playing dodgeball in the dark, and, and walk in the middle, and somebody will hit you. That's what happened to me. I don't know what happened, but I was hit by the ball. You go where balls are flying. Christian, your mind must be continually renewed. The word of the Lord to you is, be renewed. Go where renewal is flying around. Go where renewal happens. Let me try to illustrate this. and draw this to a close here by trying to illustrate how you do that. I'm going to skate over this. There's some details I could explore further, I'm sure. But I'm going to just pick one of the sins from verse 19. Take physical impurity. When you're walking down the street or you're alone with the internet or with your boyfriend or girlfriend or something, in certain situations or various activities and lusts arise, what do you do? You realize, I'm about to be, or I am, in verse 19. But before that, you need to realize, actually, I'm in verse 18. There are two ways to deal with that. By far... The best way to deal with that is to start fighting that Friday night situation right here today, right now. And later this afternoon, and Sunday night, and Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and you'll be in a much better situation come Friday night. What you do throughout all of the week is you put yourself where renewal happens. You bathe your mind in the scriptures. You feed on them like sweet honey. 
You fellowship with those ministers of the word and with all others who will speak the truth to you in love. And then over the scriptures with those other people, you pray, pray, pray that God would open your eyes and would show himself to you and would change you bit by bit by bit so that when Friday night comes along and verse 19 activity presents itself, you say, you've got to be kidding me. I don't want anything to do with that. That is by far the best way to fight against verse 19. Attend to the renewal of your insides. Tend to your mind every day, all day. Put yourself where renewal happens, in the scriptures, with scripture-minded people who are praying the scriptures. But if you find yourself on Friday night in that situation, not all hope has been lost because you have already been renewed. Your slavery to sin has been broken. You have no obligation to sin. You can, it is much harder, but you can by faith say, I am about to embrace a lie. God may seem right now to my flesh like a big spoil sport for denying me this, but it is not true. The curtains are trying to close over my mind and help me to lead me into a deception, but it's not true. I'm going to humble my heart before him and ask him for grace to get up and walk out. And you can do that because you have been renewed. Your slavery to sin has been broken and you have a relationship with God. Therefore, you can put off again what you have already put off. It's much harder, but it can be done. There probably are more details to talk about there, but this process is critical. It's critical. It has to happen in you if you are to walk in holiness and righteousness, and you must walk in holiness and righteousness. But as I was thinking about this, this kind of fear came over me. I imagine that most people here right now are, generally speaking, in agreement with what I've just said. I'm worried that you won't do anything about it. I'm worried that you'll realize there's a dodgeball game going on in the gym and that if you walked in there, you would get hit, but you won't. Are you going to tend to your mind? You must. You've got a Bible in your own language. You've got Christians here who want to see you succeed. You've got a church family around you that provides all kinds of various opportunities for fellowship and prayer and interaction with the scriptures and service and loving of other people. Are you going to get involved with these things that will help you renew your mind? Or not? Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that you would work in such a way on us here that we would be doers and not just hearers of the truth. You would move in us in such a way that we would be committed to tending to our minds, the inside of us, 
that we would think right. Lord, I'm mindful of a, of a Christian man in my past who was such an influence on me that used to repeatedly say to me, you're not thinking straight. You're valuing things wrongly. And I pray that you would put people in each of our lives who would say that to us. That you, by the Spirit, would say that to us. You're not thinking straight. And that you would lead us to places that help us think straight. Would you continually renew us, Lord? To draw our hearts to you, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.